would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning with me to Mark chapter 12 as we continue in our series in Mark. Before we begin to look at and reflect upon God's Word, let's once again turn to Him in prayer, asking for His help. Please join me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed we do ask that you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit, that you would renew our minds, that you would enable us to grasp the heights of your plans for us. Father, we acknowledge that your truths are unchanged from the dawn of time, truths that will echo down through eternity. And Father, it is by grace through faith that we'll stand on your promises. And by faith, Father, we will walk as you walk with us. So, Father, would you be pleased now to speak till your church is built and the earth, beginning here in this place, is filled with your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys like taking tests? Yeah, I'm sure you have a favorite kind of test, you know, essay, multiple choice, fill in the blank, short answer. What do you think about multiple choice questions that only have two choices? In other words, either this or that, either yes or no. If you've paid any attention to the news If you've paid any attention to just the workplace, the bus stop, the grocery store, wherever you're out and about, I'm sure you can pick up on the fact that we live in an increasingly polarized society where there are polar opposites. Some say yes, some say no. Some say this, some say no, not this, but that. There are polar opposites out there now politically, economically. Racially, you know, it's you're a liberal or you're conservative, you're Republican or you're Democrat, you are uh, rich or you are poor, you are black or you are white, you are native born or you are a foreigner. There is no room in those kind of situations for nuance, no room for discussion, no room for thoughtful engagement because the the pressing polarization shuts it down. Now, to be sure, in the Bible, there are issues that are black and white. Yes and no. Of course, we know that. Just think about someone is either in Christ or they are not in Christ. They are either saved by grace through faith or they're not saved at all. However, Often in the Bible, what we see is not an either or, but rather a both and. And it takes wisdom, great wisdom, wisdom from above to know the difference. Think with me about some yes, no questions that we might get out in society. It's a familiar one, um, but it's this question. Have you stopped beating your wife? Or, if that's not your particular situation, how about this? 
Have you stopped cheating on your income tax? How do you like to answer that question? Answering a question like this places you in a very difficult situation. It's the coin toss where the the person flipping the coin says, heads I win, tails you lose. You got to think about that one for a moment. It's a lose-lose. Because asking a question like this is a way to exert power and control. And that's what we have in our text this morning, as we will see Jesus being asked a question, not for the purpose of learning, not for the purpose of gaining new information or understanding, but rather for the purpose of exerting power and control over him. Yet we will see Jesus coming back with an answer that leaves everyone speechless. We began this series in September of 2015. We are here on number 46. We've got to ask ourselves this question again. Why study the Gospels in general and Mark in particular? The Gospels, of course, are where Jesus is revealed. It's foundational to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Luke 24 reminds us that Jesus says the Bible is all about him. Indeed, in the Old Testament, it's Jesus predicted. In the Gospels, it's Jesus revealed. In Acts, it's Jesus preached. In the epistles or letters, Jesus is explained. And finally, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. At the center of the Christian faith is Jesus. He is the object of our faith. And yet today, as always, there's much confusion and ignorance as to who Jesus is. And that's why we're in this series, Jesus According to the Bible. Well, where are we in Mark? There are 16 chapters. We're in the second half. There's been a confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ. And there's also been a call to discipleship, a call to follow him. And we see that pivot and that hinge in chapter 8. Chapters 11 through 16, and again we're in chapter 12, cover only a week in his life, the last week as it were of his earthly life and ministry, but it consumes nearly a third of Mark's gospel. Last question, when we looked at uh, Mark eleven twenty-seven through 12, 12, we saw It was all about authority, the question of authority, the rejection of authority, and then finally, in the end of the parable, the exercise of authority. Well, today's text stays on this theme of authority as the religious and political leaders of Israel attempt to exercise authority over Jesus, but where Jesus once again demonstrates his authority. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, you'll see in most of your Bibles, it's labeled paying taxes to Caesar. Now, those are, of course, editorial titles for sections. That's not in the original. But if you turn, um, and you don't need to do this, but to Matthew 22, 15 through 32, and Luke 20, 20 through 38, you'll see also the same heading, paying taxes to Caesar. All three synoptic gospels provide an account of this encounter Jesus has, as we will see with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Join with me as I read these verses, beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. 
And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Notice how it begins to trap him. Mark is very clear as to what's taking place, to trap him. And look at how it ends. And they marveled at him. They were amazed. They were left speechless. Well, our approach to the text this morning will be first to examine the trap set by the Pharisees and Herodians, and then second, to explore the teaching given by Jesus in response. Let's look look first at their trap. And the very word trap speaks of a language of pursuit, of a hunter with a trap or a net. And we, we can think back to Mark 1, 13, when Jesus went out to the wilderness and he was tempted amongst the wild beasts. He was tempted by Satan. It's, it's, a language, it's a violent word to trap him. Well, who wants to trap him? Well, it's the Sanhedrin, that ruling body of 71 uh, religious leaders in Israel who send a group from the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, And a a group not from the Sanhedrin, the Herodians. Now, who are the Pharisees and the Herodians? Well, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 6, they are natural enemies of one another. United, however, against a common threat. A threat that they see in Jesus. The Pharisees, we know, they're the religious conservatives. There's the ones who are not just concerned about the written law, but they have an oral law that goes along with it. They, they are wanting to protect the Jewish religion from outside influence. They are the conservatives. The, the Herodians, on the other hand, are the liberals. They're the compromisers. They're the ones that are trying to make the best of the Roman occupation. Uh, They are kind of politically liberal. They they want to align themselves with whoever's the ruling party. So you have natural enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians, coming together in opposition to Jesus. Make no mistake, Mark is deliberate in telling us that it's the Pharisees and the Herodians. This is not some detail just to gloss over and fly by. We need to stop and think, what is it? that would make two groups of men who otherwise wouldn't want to hang out with each other, why are they cooperatively working together? It's all because of Jesus, who He is and what He came to do. You'll notice that in this trap, a false dilemma is presented. Notice before we see the trap, 
look how they approach Jesus. They approach him with flattery. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But notice, they approach Jesus with flattery, setting up this question, this yes or no question that it's designed to force Jesus onto the horns of a dilemma. Now, do you all know what a, the horns of a dilemma means, what it's an expression of? Well, it's facing a choice between two un, uh, un, equally undesirable alternatives. If you say yes, it's a bad situation. If you say no, it's a bad situation. And I think I messed the coin toss up. I think you guys didn't laugh because I didn't get it right, but I'll work on it. But that's what it was. No matter what, they had flipped the coin such that they would win and Jesus would lose. It's the horns of a dilemma. They thought that regardless of whether Jesus would answer yes or no, they would succeed in bringing an end to his popularity and ministry. And remember earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, they plotted to destroy him. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? If Jesus answers, yes, it is lawful to pay, people will accuse Jesus of being a collaborator collaborator with Rome and lose faith in him as a liberator. People would reject it. Now remember, Jesus has just come into Jerusalem a few days earlier. People have acknowledged Son of David, Hosanna. They are expecting liberation still in a political, military um, frame. So if Jesus says, yes, it is lawful to pay, they've got him. Because the people will reject Jesus. They will abandon Jesus. However, if Jesus answers no, if it is not lawful, in other words, don't pay, they've got him. Because Rome, the Roman authorities will arrest him as a subversive. And we'll hear more about that in a few moments. They thought they had finally caught Jesus in a trap. But what we see instead is Jesus, first of all, exposing their brazen hypocrisy. Notice that although they, that being the Pharisees and the Herodians, although they spoke the truth about Jesus, they didn't believe the truth about Jesus. Let me say that again. Even though they spoke the truth about Jesus, they didn't believe the truth about Jesus. Because if they had, they wouldn't have done what they did. For you see, by their own admission, Jesus is what? Not swayed by appearances. And what is a hypocrite? comes, of course, from the Greek words of someone who wears a mask, who's trying to deceive, to be something they are not. It's, it's, It's comical, isn't it? It's ironic. They say you're not swayed by appearances, and yet they're trying to come in 
and be who they're not. They are insincere. They are not seeking the truth on this issue, but rather they're seeking to trap Jesus. This hypocritical praise is deeply ironic. The content is true, but not the character of the men. It's insincere. Well, the trap is set, but in what follows, we will see that Jesus not only doesn't allow himself to be trapped by them, he turns the tables and traps them through his teaching. I mean, it's like Jesus has come in and turned the tables over again through his teaching. And so now let's explore what it is that Jesus is teaching in response to their question. Notice first Jesus' actions and his words. Bring me a Daenerys. Well, we've got to take a moment and get some historical background. Back in 6 AD, the Roman government imposed a census for taxation. This taxation was known as a poll tax, and it was one day's wages. That's what a denarius was. It's a poll tax, one day wages. And back in 6 AD, shortly after this census was made and this, this tax is created, there was a revolt, a revolt by a man named Judas of Galilee. He led resistance to this Roman Empire um, course of action, and he was put down. He was resisted himself. He was captured, arrested. And what happened to Judas of Galilee? He was crucified. So Jesus, in saying, bring me a Daenerys, this is not just talking about any old tax. This is talking about everybody would be familiar with this tax that Rome had imposed. And Jesus provides a brilliant and penetrating answer. It's another evasion of the trap of the enemy, but also it's a condemnation of the attitude of the heart of Jesus' enemy. First, Jesus is going to teach on what is owed to man. He's asked for a Daenerys. Interestingly, they bring it to him. They had it. He didn't. He says this, let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. On the one side of this coin was the head of the Roman ruler. It was his likeness, Tiberius Caesar. He was the ruler at this time, around 30-ish A.D. It's just like our coins. Kids, you look at a quarter, I think it's what, George Washington, right? You look at a penny, is it Lincoln? A nickel, is it Jefferson? Wow, uh, is Truman still on something? He's on the 50-cent piece, maybe? Yeah, just like that. This goes back a long way. The likeness is the head of a Roman ruler. But also Jesus says, what inscription is on it? What is written on it? Interestingly, of course, in Latin, and we can actually go back and see these. They're out there. You see on the front, written this. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back, 
In Latin, Pontificus Maximus, high priest. Jesus asked this question, well, whose likeness is on it? What inscription? And they reply, Caesar's. Jesus is saying, well, you can't evade returning to Caesar what is his anyway. Jesus is not talking so much here about church and state as he is about man and God. Now, to be sure, the scriptures address the subject of church and state, and we heard that in Romans uh, 13, a bit of it. But here, Jesus is saying, what is rightfully owed to man? Give it back. But Jesus continues in his answer concerning what is owed to God. His second command to give God what is due Him is thus not a clarification of the first command limiting our responsibility somehow to this ruling Roman state, but rather this will be the main point of His answer. Because Jesus is saying this, I see another coin bearing another image. I see another coin bearing a different image. I see the image of God stamped on you and your lives. So Jesus concludes this, you must give to God what belongs to him. The whole of your lives. This coin is due to Caesar because it bears his image. And so whatever bears God's image, in other words, man, male and female, men and women, boys and girls, as we heard from Genesis 1. Whatever bears God's image, in other words, our whole allegiance and life is owed God, is due to God. Well, what does he mean specifically here? Well, remember, from Mark 11 and 12, we've already seen Jesus is looking for fruit, which is lacking on the fruit tree. He's looking for worship that is lacking in the temple. And he is looking for the acknowledgement of the Son of the owner as the rightful ruler of the vineyard. They're asking Jesus about a less important issue and Jesus calls to their attention the more important issue of whether or not they are giving to God what belongs to Him. Fruit, worship, and trust and belief. Caesar and God in that day were ultimate and uncontested authorities in the political and religious climate of the day. And yet Jesus here, I mean, the Jew knew that God was ultimate, Yahweh. Caesar also made it very clear that he was ultimate. But Jesus presumes to speak for both. So this really still is about authority. And here we see God, and in particular Jesus' unquestionable authority. And how do they respond to this answer? They're looking for a yes 
or a no, Jesus doesn't give it to them. How do they respond? They marvel. It is utter amazement. This is the, the intensive form of this verb. It's only in the New Testament here. They are utterly amazed at the authority of Jesus. So we've seen the trap set and sprung, not on Jesus, but rather on those who came to Jesus, not in repentance and faith, but rather with evil intent to trap him. The actions and words of Jesus leave the audience stunned and amazed. They marvel at him and what he has just done and said. They are speechless. My friends, there is a third image in this text. One was directly stated. It's the image of a man, Caesar, on this coin. And another image was most certainly implied by Jesus as he answered this question. The image of God in man. Man made in the image of God, male and female, he created them. But my friends, there is another image in our text. For as we read in these words from Colossians 1, interestingly, ones that followed our, that were in our assurance of pardon, we read these words. He, that is the beloved Son, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might have preeminence. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And make no mistake, Jesus knew He was headed to the cross. He knew that these were some of the very men that would put Him on trial and turn Him over to the ruling authority of Rome to be put to death. My friends, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And it is in the Gospel where in Jesus, God gives us what we owe Him. God gives us through our trust and faith in Christ what we owe Him. A life of perfect obedience to His law. We are indebted and owe God and in the gospel God gives us what we could never pay. Amen. Absolutely. 
In a few moments, many of us are going to approach the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And as we do that, I want us to all remember that in Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did and what He does, really does unite enemies. You see, Jesus not only unites enemies in opposition to Him, but Jesus also unites natural enemies in love for him. What do I mean? A few times I've shared with the church these words from a book called Love in Hard Places by Don Carson. In it, he writes this The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and get this, and owe Him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. My friends, coming to and sitting at the Lord's table are natural enemies. Men and women who have been reconciled to God and to one another through the work of Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And he, and he alone, paid what we owe God. Not only in terms of the precept, but also in the penalty. My friends, rejoice in the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, As we heard these words read and as they penetrated our hearts, oh Father, some of us may have recognized that uh, we may say true things about Jesus, but we don't really believe them. Oh Lord, would you enable us to not only say true things about Jesus, but also to believe them, trust in him. Father, we thank you that Jesus is not only the image of the invisible God, but he has all authority and dominion and power. And yet, Father, Jesus is a merciful ruler. He's a merciful Savior. He's one who calls all now to repent and believe the good news. So, Father, would you be pleased to give us a growing understanding of and appreciation for and a love for Jesus. Oh, Father, indeed, it's all to Him we owe. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.